Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Welcome to the ITAM Review radio show for August 2019, just about August, so I'm uh, recording on the Friday the 30th of August, sun is shining, birds are singing, Brexit's all finished. Um, <laughs> Nothing to worry about. Uh, we've had a bit of a summer break, and uh, good to be back. Welcome, everyone. Morning. Good morning. Hello. Hi. Dream team are back. First on the news agenda is that Microfocus shares are tanking. They're down thirty percent. Um, well, I think they've got a lot of challenges around the integration of the HP software side, and there must be significant overheads with that. <clears throat> And I mean, the HP side would have been massively more complex than Microfocus were used to. Um, and I think it was a six million dollar merger, was it, or acquisition? <clears throat> and I think they're still struggling of the integration of the two businesses. In the statement that was quoted in Channel uh, CRN, uh, it says the software firm said the strategic review would focus on what is required to optimize the value of our broad portfolio of products. And it will consider a range of strategic, operational, and financial alternatives available to the company. So basically, anything's up for grabs, basically, isn't it? So it could be they split it off again, or they could um, revamp it. Um, but anyway. well, I spent quite a lot, of, a lot of time acquiring what I guess you would call legacy applications and legacy software stacks. That's not to say that they are dwindling to the full extent. There's still a need for for those um, uh, portfolios, but it's um, if you look at at the at the kind of main tier one vendors that are going out there looking at innov- innovations, I, I'm not quite sure how much innovation they they're 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 piling into what is I guess a legacy application stack, which, which possibly by its nature has to be relatively stable. I have to you have to agree there because it is legacy a lot of its legacy software <clears throat> um, you've, and you as microfocus are still fairly well known in the industry for auditing you know, particularly around the COBOL and the attachment product sets um, there's nothing new coming out of them so how they're hitting their targets either maintenance renewals perhaps software audits to make sure people are running the right quantities um, but you don't, you're not getting people going off and buying legacy COBOL products or legacy terminal emulation products too often now because you can do it different ways. Are you seeing, yeah. are you seeing the microfocus or you know traditional audit reputation for HPE products? I haven't that? seen, I haven't seen apart from attachment side. I guess the Hatchway have been doing that for years, haven't they? Yeah, the COBOL, products, the COBOL products have been audited. I'm, I'm aware of three or four audits in the last 18 months, but um, I'm not really close to the audit side. Um, well, up until beginning of this year, I wasn't particularly close to the audit side. So um, I think there obviously is. Otherwise, well, maybe there's not enough, which is why they haven't made their target. Yeah, but I can, I mean, the other the other the other option could be that to maintain their targets, they've had to increase some of the maintenance and support, and maybe customers have just said, "Well, actually, I'm I'm, I'm going to either go third party on that, or I'm just going to go with no support, and um, if I need someone to fix it, I'll just pay a day rate for someone to come in and do that, which could have dipped the revenues as well." So what we're basically saying is, it's all Lightham's fault that um, that. Microfocus shares are tanked because we're doing our jobs and we're um, defending the audits and um, and um, thinking about our, our support renewals, all the stuff we talk about, and um, ultimately, eventually, it does affect their bottom line, doesn't it? Um, yeah, and also, I think that, you know they've got a broad portfolio, and as soon as you you've got a broad portfolio, then you're you're stepping away from your core competencies, perhaps, and difficult to integrate that stuff. Yeah, um, I think salespeople struggle to actually understand what they sell. 
Yeah. And obviously, obviously you've still got HP salespeople and micro-focus salespeople, but to try and cross-sell means you've either got two people selling into the same accounts, mm. which we all know that's a not particularly good recipe. <clears throat> um, and the customers probably don't even know who to go to now regarding which products anyway. So I think it's a lot, of, I think it's quite an element of confusion. And the general message I think is that a, a aggressive auditor has missed their sales target and uh, you know that's going to mean they're going to be they're not going to be less aggressive on audits and and they're going to be more desperate and more keen to to strike deals aren't they yeah absolutely yeah i mean increasing revenue for these sorts of things are are where they've either gone oh actually we should have 10 more of those or 20 more of those or better go and buy those before we get audited or 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 they get audited and they they're forced down a route where they have to fulfill their their obligations as you say earlier it's not uh, there's not going to be a massive demand for oh i'll tell you what i'd like some i'd like to put emulation software in every endpoint in my on my estate i don't think that really happens very much these days as jeff said there's alternatives that are probably more technologically efficient or commercially efficient to do that next piece of industry news is uh I mean, really, reading between the lines here, I think isn't uh, Larry being sued by his own company, uh, Oracle? More Oracle litigation. Anyone want to unpick this one? There's a hell of a lot I've to read. unpick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, perhaps not in an hour. But the bit I've read that um, he, Oracle seems to be suing him for his own company, which is, mm-hmm. um, and I haven't read all the detail, but isn't it around a previous? company that he owned or had shares in that he managed to persuade Oracle to buy yeah. and, um, it, and it's, I, mean, I haven't made much more than that highlight but that's what I believe it is. That's, that's, that's pretty much it in a nutshell it's all about NetSuite because I think at the time Oracle bought NetSuite Larry and members of his family owned something like 80% of the company and obviously he heavily influenced the decision by Oracle to actually buy NetSuite so um, I think um, you know, the, the directors have now authorised shareholders to sue him on the basis that it was malpractice because he heavily influenced the decision that he got a major and his family got a major benefit out of. And that is what it comes down to. So is he still chairman? Um, I, I'm not sure. I don't know if he's, don't know if he's chairman. Um, he's he like CTO or something. He's I think CTO he's... now because yeah, Mark Hurd and Safra Katz are the joint CEOs. Um... I think I think Larry's the CTO. He was CEO once, and then he decided to be CTO when they bought Mike Mark Hurd in, so he could focus more on the technology side or basically his yachting interests, or you know, giving money to politicians, that sort of stuff. Allegedly, allegedly, <laughs> and, and, and also, it hasn't worked, has it? If we look at Jedi, he probably needed to. There's, there's, there's no allegedly about it. Um, so what one point I will make is if we're going to talk about Jedi. Um, so I don't know I don't know how up you are on on recent events. Obviously, is it Marco Rubio is one of the senators for Florida? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He weighed in on behalf of Oracle because Oracle weren't very happy about the outcome of their lawsuit. Um, Larry Ellison has previously donated millions of dollars to to Marco Rubio's campaigns, um, which is on public record. Um, and obviously Donald Trump got involved as well, um, but I think that was more because of the fact the DOD were going to give the contract to Amazon and Donald Trump isn't exactly best friends with Jeff Bezos. And they've got a new guy in at DOD, haven't they? Yes, right, yeah. And, and Je- Imagine Jeff that, uh, changing <laughs> the administration. Yeah, I, mean, and it is, I, I don't know how many people are aware as well. Jeff Bezos also owns the Washington Post, which yep. is one of Donald Trump's preferred targets when he goes on about fake news. He, he believes that's all they do. So, so it's all very political, I think. Other Oracle news we've heard is uh, there's a new audit clause or amendment to the audit clause involving scripts. And we've also heard that uh, the Oracle verification um, scheme they have, which I think has got six tools in at the moment, is being opened up. And we've heard that a couple more tools are being added to that for whatever reason. Um, any, so what is the new clause? What are they doing to the audit clause? So, so the new clause says, um, effectively, you must run Oracle scripts to, you know, on request 
So that or that defence, uh, that usual defence of we don't trust your scripts and batting it out to security or compliance or whatever internally to to play a nice straight bat against that and um, and you know um, either delay it or, or, or get to run your own tools. Um, that's part of it. Um, and also, they, there's a new non-disclosure um, clause in the agreement, which I think is there basically to head off that normal other, that other defence of getting two or three-way NDAs signed between parties, um, which, as we know, that's that's a, that, that's a common audit defence tactic as well. Um, but if you need to run an Oracle script, well, then why are they why are they verifying new tools? Um, Got a little bit of background on this because of some history. <clears throat> the the Oracle verified tools um, still have to produce the LMS output in exactly the same format that Oracle wants. So rather than having to deploy, and this this was the original concept of the the verification process was that the LMS tools, the LMS scripts are quite difficult to deploy if you haven't already got a centralized Oracle user ID, which is not particularly common. Uh, most people have different database administration passwords for different databases. So the idea of verifying a tool set was that if people are going to go and have the hassle of deploying a tool set, you might as well verify a few, but the verification process is really strict and it's an annual thing the Oracle will say, right, I want you to be able to pick up this bit of information out of your tool set and present it in the script format that they, that they can then run through their own Oracle um, license compliance verification process. So um, I think what they're trying to do is just open it up a bit more because some of the tools in that list are, have been around for a long, long time and some of them are fairly new. Um, so I think they're just trying to bring more people into the market. Um, <clears throat> so it'll be interesting to see which ones go forward because the verification process is quite tough, um, having seen the, the requirements of it last year. I think, I think we should also add a, a note of caution here, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, but my, if my memory is correct, the Oracle tool verification program only actually applies to a subset of products as well, doesn't it? So right. Oh yeah, yeah. The database so, and option back, so it doesn't apply to other Oracle products. Correct. And um, what they've started to do, there's a new. I mean, clearly they're getting bored with their acronyms, but uh, what the old LMS scripts was only database and feature backs or option backs. They have now created a new one called SLM. Um, you know, maybe the next one's called MLS. No, I'd better not use that one, had they? Um, <laughs> so. Um, the new one is attempting to get sort of web logic stuff and i mean um, webs no webs yeah web logic isn't it um and tuxedo and that sort of stuff because it's it's application middleware which can get wildly out of control very quickly more so than oracle <clears throat> um so they've tried to include that in there but actually i've looked at that script and all it's doing is collecting a whole load of x executable-like information. It's just um, XML data to prove that something is there, and then Oracle will actually start digging deeper. So that that script, the SLM one, is more, you should be much more aware of running that than an, than an LMS script, just purely because of what it's collecting and taking off your network. Just coming back to, to what AJ said, I don't think the new clause actually forces you to run the scripts. Um, you know, it's worded in such a way that it uses um, words like reasonable assistance, um, you know, and access to information reasonably requested by Oracle. So I, I, I don't think, I still don't think they can actually force you to run the scripts legally because the, the, the legal definition of reasonable when it comes to contracts is uh, something like what's proportionate under the circumstances. Um, there's no really real definition of what under the circumstances means or how it can be interpreted in court. So I think if you can demonstrate that you have access to the data that Oracle want without actually having to run the scripts, I think that actually enables you to, to have, stand your ground and have an argument with them about it, potentially. That's very uh, fluffy wording, isn't it? Well, it is. It is. But I think what we've got to be careful of is, is not panicking people because, you know, I still don't think... I mean, a lot of people, historically, when it comes to Oracle audits 
the letter hits the mat and people go into panic mode. And I think we've got to be very careful about that because that still isn't, although they've tightened up the audit clause and they've now got use of scripts in there, it still isn't a legal obligation to actually run the script. I think if you're if you're if you think about it carefully and you know your environment and you plan it well and you work in conjunction with other teams like your security teams, <laughs> I still think you can find ways around it. And, and and also bear in mind as well, this is a new agreement, so your existing agreement, absolutely, your existing agreement. So try and keep that as long as possible. If you're if you are really worried about it, let's wait and see what happens with uh, whether this sort of changes the audit behaviour. Uh, but if you, your old agreement still it still remains. You know they, they can't change that. The last line says, uh, "Your you, so you're going to run Oracle data management tools on your servers and also provide the results of the data to Oracle because that's another stall for audit defence, isn't it? That okay, you can run the script, but you have to come on site to read them, or we're not sending the data off site and all that sort of thing. So I think that a lot of this is and is is upping audit defence tactics, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of clients will still find ways around it. Yeah. Just, just as a final point on this as well, um, I've, I've been trying to find it. I saw it earlier this week, um, but it seems to I can't remember where I did see it. But um, they're renaming Oracle LMS um, to something else that's a bit fluffier and more customer friendly, and they're also starting to publish customer success stories um, with from engaging with LMS. Um, so. That's interesting. I mean, that's kind of that almost the same approach that Microsoft took a couple of years ago with their approach to trying to make SAM, their vendor SAM, be a bit more customer friendly. Are they moving towards more of a partnership um, approach for their customers? Sort of watch this space, I think. Or they knocked off some money as part of an audit settlement in, um, in exchange for a case study customer reference look how great oracle lms have helped us with our oracle licensing <laughs> call me a skeptic but. <laughs> talking to microsoft during their inspire conference they were promoting sam streams at their sessions at their partner sessions uh, which were purely about how do we do uh, azure audits of our customers or, or audit or azure pre-sales engagement for our customers and Despite the fact that two, I think it was two years ago, they said we we're going to stop abusing the word SAM. We're going to stop confusing it with the Microsoft audit, and we're going to try to be a lot more mature about things. And they've seems to have gone back to their old ways. We've seen the change from you can, I think, do those SAM engagements with certain partners that get funded to do the license reviews and all the other bits and bobs. Um, all, all of those guys that are doing that now are now cloud. Uh, economics engagement managers and not some engagement managers so it's it's a slightly softer approach it's almost to say let us do this assessment for free and we'll prove to you or we'll sh or it'll show you an enablement route to migrate on-premise workloads into Azure and we'll do that through the use of technologies like Movair and Turbonomic and and there's a couple of others that are kind of on the periphery as well um, so it, it's kind of taking them um, a carrot versus stick approach. Um, so um, all of that, did, all of that is your pre-sales. It's not. Yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's but that's uh, you know, those guys that we might have come across that were SAM engagement managers now that aren't called SAM engagement managers. So we we've seen the word SAM eradicate itself over the last twelve months anyway. Uh, but I understand your point. There were some quote Sam sessions within within Inspire. Um so yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure whether you know what what, what the route is there. And, you know, it seems to think seem to think they're trying to move away from the word Sam anyway. Because it kind of has a an audit and license compliance flavour to it rather than the what it, what it should be viewed as. Next piece of industry news, VMware buying Pivotal and Carbon Black. What's the significance of this one? Well, I mean, Carbon Black is like um, on, on the cybersecurity portfolio, which is a fairly significant outlay. Um, but the, other, the interesting thing is, is Pivotal, which was a spin-off between Dell and EMC uh, at one point. So it's, it's a kind of... Um, Red Hat OpenShift type containerization uh, competitor. 
So I think they're going down that route now where they're kind of widening the portfolio, looking at what's coming down. Cybersecurity is a massive industry, a massive need for most customers. Um, containerization seems to be a very much emerging technology, almost like virtualization was in the in the early days. This will be the next uh, version of that, I think. And I think having those products and services and solutions that adapt and and be able to um, satisfy customer needs in those two key areas, I think, is is I guess part of their 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 um their thinking on that. It, it also means that Dell have increased their shareholding effectively in in, in VMware. So um, that's it's kind of by the by because they've been a majority shareholder for a while now. But um, it goes up to about eighty percent, doesn't it? I think. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, low eighties. So. Um, that's no by the buyer in, I think. Um, As a side note on Carbon Black, if you've got it within your organization, it's another great data enrichment source, if you like, for ITAM stuff. Just a, a handy tip for you there. And interesting, the VMware share price fell by more than 4% just after that news was uh, released. So maybe investors are looking at that. I think the pivots are ones that. I mean, the Dell and the VMware relationship's always been a bit confusing, really. And then Pivotal being owned by the parent company that now is sold to the sort of cousin that now is now owned by the uncle type arrangement, I think maybe the reason why VMware's share price might have had a bit, I don't know. Yeah, that, 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 that's basically it. It's a bit like um, uh, the Glazers loading up Man United with them. Um, with debt, it's that kind of thing. Then there'll be all sorts of stuff going on behind the scenes financially. I'm sure that mm. probably, yeah, dilutes VMware a little bit. So, sorry, sorry, just just to finish up on that point that Davis mentioned about Carbon Black, and and once again, we're seeing this convergence of tools coming in from the um, from from the security side of things coming into IT management. Um, so that's just just an ongoing trend. Um, SolarWinds bring you know, um, buying SAM tools. And actively selling those, um, and uh, Qualys moving into the market, and so on. So, so we're seeing this concentration of capabilities around discovery and inventory, in particular, coming in from different areas of um, of IT. And yes, it does mean you're absolutely right, David. There's so much more rich data out there that you can that can help you um, from an ITAM perspective. Go talk to people. Isn't this just a natural continuation of roles evolving? Because I'm also starting to see more vendor management roles within SAM or SAM roles within vendor management or contracts procurement, which I think they've always been there, but definitely my background being technical, I haven't really been so much aware of it until the last few months where um, people have started to start and say, well, Sam's now in this part of the business or we're now part of vendor management or contract renewals, not just IT or finance, but quite specifically in an area which has typically had quite a lot of influence in expenditure or reducing expenditure. But I think as part of an overall ITAM function, you need to have those vendor management skills anyway, right? Because there's probably a lot of ITAM people out there that are also doing kind of service delivery stuff, trying to make sure that they're having the service um, review meetings every month with key vendors, whether it's hardware, software, cloud, mobiles, whatever. Um, you know, sometimes that kind of role falls onto the item guy's shoulders. So you need to be able to at least keep your head above the water with those kind of other, like you said, softer skills um, to be able to, again, add value. And I, I definitely think vendor management and stuff like that should kind of have some sort of item connection or element into it. Cause you know, Absolutely. I really, um, I, 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 I mean, back, backing up what, what David says, well, I've always viewed um, a skilled IT asset manager as being able to bridge the gap between commercial and technology. So you should be able to sit in a in a meeting with the commercial guys and vendor management guys and explain the technical impacts of, of what they may be looking into from a commercial perspective and vice versa with the technical guys when they're looking at sort of, you know, technical changes, you should be able to explain the commercial impacts of what they're proposing. So it's very much a bridge between the two practices, in my view. Are we allowed to mention the uh, Corliss stuff? Is that public knowledge yet? Yeah, that's all public. Yeah, um, global asset inventory is. Can you say? Can you give share what they're up to? It's quite um, disruptive, isn't it? 
It is, it is pretty disruptive, yes. Yeah. So, so they, they've announced a product which um, <clears throat> sort of soft launched at the start of August and is really out there in the market now. Qualys are doing completely free, unlimited inventory and discovery. They're using it as a, as, you know, to prime the pump for their other, for their other products. So, so, so Qualys are primarily a security management um, uh, company and they've realized along with everybody else in the security world that you can't secure what you don't know about. So they're really, really focused on inventory and discovery. And they have their agents out there um, doing as much of that as possible to really, really get a picture of the network as a whole. If you think about the Equifax hack, that was down to some servers that weren't being reached by a security patch management tool. So knowing about these things on your network is, is very important to security guy, um, uh, uh, vendors. Um, so they've decided to do discovery and inventory for free. Um, it's pretty advanced stuff. Um, it is all agent-based at the moment. So, so Qualys do actually pride themselves on being kind of agentless, um, instant kind of um, discovery. But practically, in practical terms, what they're doing now is, is, is agent-based discovery. Um, the, certain, the, the agentless stuff is coming along in pretty soon. So yeah, um, um, take a look at it. It won't necessarily fit your use case. Um, there's big gaps. So, you know, they're not really doing anything. Um, for example, that they don't, don't connect into your hypervisors to pull back um, metadata about your um, your data center. So you can't connect it to the sensor and, and, and get a list of machines out of it that way. You can stick an agent on each individual virtual machine and get a full a full software inventory and a hardware inventory. Cool. And I think I think what was uh, different for me is the. Uh, free inventory is not a new thing. There's a few other options there, but they're also doing the normalization for free. And that's, that's uh, if they're doing that well, if, if they're executing well on that, that will potentially damage a few people. Yeah, yeah. The normalization stuff is, um, is growing because it's, it's, it's machine learning based. Um, so so they're, they're busy training that by onboarding customers and improving it with, with all the customer data that they're receiving. Um, so one of you guys with your own environments, you can already download it from their website. So I uh, fully expect a, a report on how good it is by the end of the day, please. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's pretty good. I mean, there's lots of gaps. Looking at it, I've got it installed. Looking at it from, from an ITAM perspective, there's kind of lots of kind of bits and pieces missing and it's a bit fiddly and a bit clunky. Um, but and that's the nature of security tools because the guys, the, their core customers are so incredibly technical they're quite happy to jump through running really complicated scripts to install the agent, for example. It's there. It's, it's certainly going to be a disruptor. A uh, question for you. ITAM best practice. Uh, if I'm a new asset manager, what is the significance of change management? What, what, what impact will change management have on my ability to control my state? And how, if you were explaining this to a new person, what's the significance of change management in terms of ITAM? So basically, from my point of view, and I'm thinking about this from an overall ITAM point of view, so including the hardware and the mobiles and cloud stuff as well, I think change management should be seen as the, the gatekeeper for your organization, making sure that anything that any of your other teams do um, doesn't result in um, like a P1 failure or, well, any other kind of failures, really. But from an ITAM point of view, there's a lot of things that can go wrong through unauthorized changes or not following change management processes, such as changes within your data center environment, for example. You're, you've got a server running slowly. Uh, you want to put some more memory in it or you want to increase the storage space or you, you even want to kind of provision a new one. You don't go through change management, yet you still put some OS software on it and some database software on it. Straight away, you've got a compliance risk in there. Other examples um, from a hardware asset management and mobile point of view is physically moving servers from different sites without raising a change request. Um, and then obviously your HAM ITAM teams are not going to have a Scooby-Doo as to where those physical assets are. Um, and from a mobile point of view and cloud, actually from a cloud point of view, I don't know whether you guys agree, but I've been trying to push for new cloud instances to go through CAB and not through a standard change through a proper cab need to approve it. There needs to be a verified owner for the cloud instance. Um, there needs to be a cost center and point of contact, et cetera. Again, just so that ITAM can govern and control um, the IT asset state. Go on, Jeff, you can probably elaborate and explain that far better than I can. 
Um, no, that's a good start. Um, I think uh, change management is is a really good place to catch potential non-compliance. <clears throat> and if you can put some sort of simulation in to say, if I stick another server on a virtual on a cluster, what's the licensing impact? Then that's really great because it stops. It's, you then become proactive software asset management rather than reactive. And typically, if people haven't budgeted for the expense of £100,000 worth of a database product, then they're not going to have it after they've deployed it. Um, and so uh, I, I like the way some of the tool sets now have got, if you change this, it's going to have an impact on this bit of licensing software or this bit of software. Um, and I, I think it's just another step forward to fully integrating SAM with all of the other parts of the organization, which everyone's been banging on about for years, but no one's actually realized the benefit of you know, SAM actually, or software asset management, collects a lot more data than perhaps people think. And because we get it from different data sources, we actually become a trusted data source rather than a... Uh, a sideline activity within an organization. So I, I'm really up for change management integrating into software asset management because I think it, it has a it has a financial benefit to any organization. So basically on the back of what you're saying as well is something that um again I should push. If you are an ITAM, SAM, Cloud, whatever kind of professional in our space and you're not on the change advisory board or you don't get the minutes, you don't get the agenda you need to go and talk to your change management team and make sure that you are considered as part of that. Because there's, I mean, the instance that um, people used to give, you know, years ago about Oracle when they released a new feature, you know, your DB guys can just flick a switch, they've got it, and it costs you 20-odd thousand pound a year in licensing. You can use that as a kind of scaremongering tactic to say, look, you're potentially making changes that in, could impact our compliance, could have financial risk, could have <coughs> um, reputational risks. Even if, there's not a lot of stuff on the cab agenda that actually relates to hardware, software, mobiles, cloud, et cetera, at least giving you that visibility of what's going on within your organization will help you, like Jeff said, catch non-compliance issues before they actually start to unravel. Probably of more importance to them than rep company risk and all the rest of it is their project could potentially get unwound and put back again because of the risk. No. That, that's all about the right engagement with uh, project management, isn't it? Um, I mean, I, I did, if you recall, I did a presentation about this at the, the conferences last year. And I think, um, obviously, PMO is effectively a series of changes, the PMO process, isn't it? Because you've got your changes for your, your build and test environments, you've got changes for full deploy, changes of decommissioning old stuff, assuming your projects actually do decom old, old systems. But I think as well, with, change, with a change, standard change management process, there should be several touch points along the way you know i think um you want to be talking to your change management team and actually saying right this is a list of changes that i would need to see and it could be anything from a software installation to uh, a cpu addition or a cpu removal i mean obviously everyone's going to have their own bespoke set but it's it's fairly standard you can come, probably come up with 12 or, or 14 types of changes that you would want to see mm. and then you would need to actually have a task in your in your um service management tool that actually comes to your team that enables you to evaluate that change properly before it even gets to cab. You know, then I think you want to be seeing your forward schedule of changes when that comes out, which in most organizations in my experience is probably um, every week. Um, then you want to be on the cab and making sure you actually your views on the impacts of that change are heard. And then the last piece as well, and I think it's often overlooked, is post-implementation review. Every change has a PIR to actually ensure that you know, there were lessons learned from the process. If things went wrong, what happened? If it went right, great. But for me, from an ITAM perspective, the PIR is about actually making sure that the change that you signed off was actually carried out. Because if they had a problem executing the change, they said, oh, we needed to throw an extra CPU into it to make sure it worked properly, then that's a license and impact that you weren't previously aware of before the change actually went through. So I think it's really important to have several touch points in the process. Yeah, I agree. I mean, um, I've had customers where I've I've recreated a process to put ITAM SAM onto the Technical Design Authority Change Management Board, whatever, whatever they want to call it, um, just to be able to advise that because there have been some things that have happened that were neg negatively affected. Um, con conversely, 
when that process did work well, you know, back to your point earlier about the um, hardware refresh, we had a customer that said, yeah, we're going to, you know, refresh all the hardware from P5 to P6 on the IBM side of things. And um, I said, all right, okay, well, that's going to cost you £100,000 in additional licenses because the PVU counts are different. And they put the, put the hold on that project. But also on another customer, they found a server they didn't have any use for and put SQL on it. And it was a 16 CPU machine back in the CPU days. So that suddenly went from compliant to, oh, where's that come from? And then reverting that back. And to your point at the end there, Baz, um, it's, always, it's the same as when you're... Um, your request management, isn't it? You know, I want Adobe, I want Adobe standard, and suddenly professional ends up on there, and you do that validation verification at the end, and that's when you go, yeah. hang on a minute, why is that different to the request? Absolutely. It's probably no different to, um, to change management. And if you look at how, well, yeah, we back to service now, and that their goal is the CMDBs is the golden record. So change management, Obviously, and all of all of the disciplines feed into that. So, that keeping that process governed properly and uh, updated, regimented, validated, all the rest of it means that that can be the golden record, and all the other contributors within the the, the stack from problem, change, incident, SAM, item. IT ops, HR, infosec, all the rest of it can contribute properly to that and keep that being the golden record, which is always always a challenge with, with organisations. Yeah, and if, and if you expand, you know, where we're talking about change management to include sort of a full PMO process as well, I mean, coming back to what Jeff said about saving money, I mean, it enables you, if you've got a, a, a good view of the pipeline that's coming, it enables you to uh, do proper demand forecasting for your licence and, and assets as well. Um, you know, and then that enables you to be much more efficient in your usage of, of licences and assets. And I think without a change management, um, or having ITAM rather involved in change management, you could find that your organisation is uh, getting servers out of being from decommissioned back into use for use as a file server with a ridiculous uh, processor and core count, um, as you guys all know, I found recently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, and no, the, the tool providers are running to catch up with this, I think, a little. Um, you're seeing as they move towards this platform approach to, to IT management. Um, obviously, ServiceNow have got license change projections. That's been in the product for a couple of releases now. Um, uh, very powerful where literally it does that. So, so you, you propose a change to your data center and increases the number of CPUs, and your change manager is automatically notified to, to approve or deny that. And, and also, the person raising that change is giving a cost protection. A cost projection and the client and the compliance uh, projections. So, very powerful stuff. We are seeing other vendors talking about building this CM using the CMDV really as being the golden version of the truth for all these processes that you need to do: ITAM, IT business management, IT ops management, and so on. The architectural side of IT as well. The architects, um, if you get involved with them or stay close to them, you can actually see what they're planning to do well, yeah. before it even gets onto change management. Um, and actually, what becomes quite interesting is if you can get a map and you can almost, almost print it out and say, right, this is what you've agreed to, and then compare it to what yet what they actually deploy in a production environment once it's gone through a few tests. It's quite often there's a difference. So they've added in new hardware or higher specs because it wasn't quite performing correctly. So then you've got an option then to sort of say, well, actually, no, guys, you you either downgrade it to what you went for originally, or you have to buy the extra licenses. And again, it's really important at that point because they've still potentially got budget. As yeah. soon as they sling it over the fence into production, all the budgets get closed down. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I would strongly recommend if you're in a large organization and you've got a project management office or a project management process, go and talk to those guys. Find out where you can stick ITAM gates into that process. Um, and it can start from really from, from way back at the, at the beginning of a project you know, where you're coming up with solutions and and doing sort of rough order of magnitude kind of ideas around um, how to deliver a, a, a business requirement. Um, get involved there, get involved in, in the business analysis and architecture sections. By the time it gets to project management and delivery, it should all be done. It should all be, no, that, that's the aim, because you don't want to have surprises 
when they're in when they're in delivery. Um, PMs really don't like that um, because they're working to a budget, and they're you know, you're, if you suddenly come up with a twenty percent budget overhead that they weren't expecting, um, a you're not very popular, and b it looks like you haven't done your job. Um, so get involved with your project management office. Job, job of the week. week. This is the role of senior software stroke hardware asset manager and software stroke hardware manager brackets technology asset manager. I think a SEO consultant has written this job title. <laughs> uh, so DWP, which is Department of Work and Pensions, uh, is looking for basically it's a it's a it's a senior asset manager. Um, anyone had a look at this role? What does what do we think of this role? So what, what I'll say, um, and I can't say too much, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> so for, for those that are aware, I, I am doing some work on the DWP, uh, Technology Asset Management Program. Um, can't say too much about what I'm doing because I'm under NDA for obvious reasons. What I'll say is they're actually recruiting quite heavily. Um, so where you see this, this job advert, that's actually uh, three roles, I think, um, if it's the one I think it is. You know, so they're, they're, they're actually bringing in quite a few new people to actually beef up the team and beef up the practice so it's, it's actually a really exciting time for the for the people currently at dwp because there's all sorts of opportunity for them to build their careers uh, and develop themselves and learn a lot of new skills out of this as well out of what's going on so um, i think it'd be really good for them all. And, and obviously anyone new that's coming in it's it's a really good opportunity because there's a real there's a raft of challenges there um i mean from the sort of person that you would need and I don't know how many of you guys on this call have actually got much public sector experience I mean that's that's a whole set of challenges in itself you yeah know, having done quite a bit of work in the public sector over the years there's all sorts of regulatory things that you have to think about um, you know commercial things and and legal obligations as well um, I mean from a commercial perspective obviously they have very very strictly defined uh, spend levels so if you know if a contractual spend on on software or cloud or whatever goes above a certain level it has to be approved by a certain person you know I mean, and, and also you've got the og process to if it's over a certain they have to put it out to the market don't they absolutely yeah i mean there's there's a the whole process around they have to compete on g cloud you know, and, and if the, the higher the cost goes, the more senior the person is has to approve it. I mean, obviously, you have ministerial level approvers, you have secretary state level approvals. If it gets too high, it has to go to the cabinet office for approval. And then on mm -hmm. top of that, you've got all of the um, auditing stuff. So, that I mean, obviously, all public sector, uh, or certainly central government departments, are subject to the National Audit Office. So, again, it's, it's something else that has to be kept in mind working in this kind of environment. So, it's, there's a lot of challenges there. Um, but as I say, I think I think for the people that land these roles and the people that are currently in the team there, it's a very exciting time for all of them. So you will manage a team of TAM specialists and engineers to ensure TAM services are implemented. So I think anyone with public sector experience that wants to step up and uh, a challenge, this is a good opportunity. The only thing I'd say about the actual job description is, is it's a bit it's a bit vague in places. It's it's not. Uh, the sort of um, the responsibilities vague, actually. Are, are, are you know a couple of bullet points and and it's just yeah it's a bit it needs to be a bit more meaty I think location could also be a challenge I think they're flexible on location although there's some some host cities that are how, how did you know that did you find that and find out that in the interview uh, yeah, yeah. They said, you know, because we really want you, but obviously I wanted too much money, so we had to, we had to part. Uh, the interesting thing is called technology asset management, which is, I guess, a move away from perhaps a ham Sam legacy title. I think if you know what, if you're the right sort of person, again, if the people looking for the people are know what they're looking for then i guess those bullet points yes they're they're vague but i guess that's the bit that you want to kind of develop and put your mark on yeah um i guess it's it's quite a a young practice so i think a lot of these things are probably have some some level of strategy and guidance but 
you would hope they'll be open to ideas and where people have used experiences in other areas and um, to to drive the the efficiencies and optimization that they're looking for and the challenge challenges they're looking to overcome. On the job front, I think this is you, Stuart, picked up a job, the compliance job at OpenText. So just as a signal for OpenText customers, they are either replacing or beefing up their license compliance team. Anyone see this one? Yeah, I think it's just a, one of those standard ones when, when anyone's recruiting for uh, license compliance roles within vendors, it either means, they, as you say, they're, they're, they need someone to replace someone or they have a, a need or demand to be able to f facilitate whatever license compliance checks they're going to be running. So, so if you're an open text customer, and uh, want some intel. It's always good to read the job description of the compliance officer. It shows what they're, how they're motivated, how they go, how they're driven, all that sort of thing. That the sort of the expertise they're looking for for their compliance job is interesting. So go, on, go on, check that out on the show notes that accompany this podcast. Just, just a quick one. Sorry, on the open text one. Again, we spoke about this before, but what it takes. The first thing on their bullet point is a bachelor's degree in science or business with an MBA or technical advanced degree and at least six years of experience in the software industry why was he even got a degree yeah see I, I, I think that's a nonsense I always have thought that's a nonsense I mean most senior sort of ITAM uh, roles that you see um, want a degree of, of some type of description um, you know unlike some of the people on this call I never went to university um, largely because I was lazy as a teenager um, so I haven't got a degree but I would contend that uh, the experience I have would set me in good stead for this role. So would, if were I to apply for it, which I've absolutely no intention of doing, but were I to apply for it, would OpenTech say, no, sorry, you've got no degree, forget the experience, you've got no degree, we don't want you. Like, jargon buster. <laughs> jargon buster! Barry, with your, we're going to anoint you with a master's degree in the School of Hard Knocks. <laughs> so you're now a uh, MA, okay? Uh, a master's in explaining technical concepts for, for TAM purposes. Yes, yes. And, and you can put it on your CV and your LinkedIn profile. So you can now... Oh, can I? Yeah. I TAM review approved. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I'll take that. <laughs> so hyper-converged infrastructure, what, what does that mean? So um, traditionally in data centers, you have sort of three distinct... Distinct? I'll try that again. <laughs> My apologies. Um, Cut. <laughs> to be fair, even with uh, even saying the word wrong, it's still better than your attempt, Stuart. So, hey, so I don't disagree, by the way. But <laughs> do go on. Much love, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, traditionally in, in data sense, you have three distinct um, components. Um, so, you have have compute, which is your your servers. That are running um, all of the applications and so on. You have uh, storage, which is obviously your big SAN storage arrays uh, like Hitachi and uh, various others, EMC, which is all of basically just a big array full of, of hard disks. And you have network, which is obviously all of your network switches, routers, whatever else you use to make your network run. Um, this, this started out as being converged infrastructure a few years ago where just a couple of those components emerged uh, into um, each other to form one sort of software-defined system. Hyper-converged infrastructure takes that a step further. So it's also another um, industry term for it is the, is the software-defined data center. So effectively, I mean, obviously for years we've had virtualized computing, which everyone's uh, aware of. Um, we now have virtualized um storage so virtual san that's been a product that vmware have offered for quite a while as well now vsan um and virtualized networking so effectively what what they're now doing with hci is actually merging all three of those components into one virtual platform and it can all be run on one server array so um if you deployed vmware hci for example you'd basically just have a couple of acts full of uh, x86 servers and you would have all of your compute storage and network hosted within those servers so it's, it's uh, as I say, it's the software-defined data center, and they're just virtualizing everything now. But the cake, Barry, where's the cake? Yeah, bring out the cake. Come on. So, okay then. Uh, if you want to get masters, you're gonna have to have a diverge con. Traditional data center on the cake. of a lemon drizzle cake, a black forest gap, 
and um, yeah, an angel cake. And what we've now done is actually just made the Black Forest Gatto that much bigger and merged the angel cake and the lemon drizzle cake into the Gatto. That sounds like a too rich for me, I'm afraid. And it's, and it's all hosted on one cake tray. <laughs> <laughs> one baking tray. It sounds like a mess. <laughs> sounds like you get, you've got three cakes, you just smashed them together. <laughs> yeah, you, you wouldn't make Bake Off with that, would you? You wouldn't uh, get a good score on Bake Off. I'll tell you what, if you went on Bake Off, wouldn't you love to do a cake like, dressed up and decorated as a data centre? How cool would that be? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> why. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> We've broken him. <laughs> Hashtag, I am a geek and I admit it. So just to, just to wrap up, uh, thank you, gentlemen, for your time today. Thank you for joining the radio show. Uh, look forward to catching up with you next month. So just to finish, a uh, few things planned from the ITAM review over the next couple of months. Uh, we have an online summit, a solution summit online, we call them, SSO, around Oracle license management. So all things Oracle licensing, uh, Oracle audit defense, um, uh, managing your Oracle risk and cost. That's on the 19th of September. We've got a number of different speakers, and uh, that's completely online. I think we've got around 350-odd people registered for that already, so, so it's a popular topic and a, uh, hopefully be a popular event, uh, so please check that out. We then move to Paris on the 3rd of October for our first event in Paris in French, uh, so if, that, if that's of interest, please check that out. And finally, for 2019, the Item View conference train moves to Melbourne in uh, November. Uh, final thing to mention is at this time of year we do our reader survey so this is when we are very keen to hear about what you're up to what you want to see from us in 2020 so we can start planning uh, and get you know we've re we pride ourselves on listening to your feedback and building content accordingly and we would love to hear your feedback so please check out our survey when it when it launches over the next few weeks uh, or any time please just drop me an email martin at itemreview.com always keen to hear your feedback with that, thank you, gentlemen. Catch you next time. Cheers, guys. See you next time. Bye, bye. Thank you. Bye, bye.